Dear colleagues, dear friends, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this new podcast, which is part of the EHAT Educational E-Learning Program. Today, we would like to focus on factor eight inhibitors during non-replacement therapy. We all feel that this is a very important topic. To discuss this today, uh, I have with me two friends, colleagues, but also major experts in the field, Professor Jan Astermark, well known to all of you, uh, who is based in Malmö, Sweden, and Professor Christoph Königs from um, Germany. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. So maybe to start, uh, I think it's important to uh, discuss a little bit what we currently know about uh, inhibitors. Um, typically, uh, in the era of uh, classical replacement therapy, but also now considering that many of our patients have been switched to emicizumab. So maybe, Jan, could you comment a little bit on this? Well, yes, I, I, uh, I think that, first of all, we know that um, you can develop inhibitors if you're exposed to factor VIII. And we know that approximately one-third of patients develop, and we also, importantly, have inhibitors in the non-severe ones. Uh, usually, they come very early. Uh, several risk factors have been discussed, and I think that for this typical topic here, I think that the issue on uh, peak treatment moments and the risk of having the, the inhibitors there is uh, probably one of the most important ones since we are discussing here non-replacement therapy and this is used for prophylaxis and then there comes situation with surgery etc when we need to expose the patients to to uh, the factor eight molecule and the question is then of course uh, what about the risk there as well as when we have them together starting early in life and here maybe chris you would like to add a little bit about the, what we know about the risk here in the really young ones. Um, yes, uh, absolutely, and I agree with you uh, regarding peak treatment moments. But what we also know from classical non-replacement therapy is the protective effect of prophylaxis uh, to to establish tolerance to factor eight. And with non-replacement therapy, we don't have factor eight for prophylaxis, so we only have like an on-demand treatment in an immunological way that the, the immune system only sees factor eight um, rarely, but if so, probably in peak treatment moments. And what that actually means for inhibitor development for to factor eight under emicizumab therapy, we don't really know yet. Well, exactly. And I think that one, one thing that we can highlight also is that we know that the, uh, many of our patients will not develop inhibitors when they're exposed to factor eight, but if they do, we can also tolerate uh, several of our, our patients. So uh, the question is, of course, later on now, how to deal with tolerance and what will the, be importance of that? And, uh, and here we don't know exactly when we combine emicizumab uh, with ITI and we stop, etc. how to deal with this. And this is something I think is important to discuss and which we also we'll discuss in, in our um, educational session. Yeah, and if I can summarize, I think it's important to be well aware that factor eight is classically used for hemostatic purposes, but also when you expose a patient with factor eight, you, you induce tolerance, if I understand. Yeah, exactly. And this is important. So it's clear that if you do not expose a patient to factor eight, these patients might not become tolerant to this factor eight. Exactly. We don't know what tolerance actually means later on in life and how important uh, it will be to have an exposure of the molecule to keep this tolerance when we need to treat them for other reasons, maybe. And maybe also to offer them other treatment options in the future. Maybe to make this, uh, well, to transfer this in our, you know, 
daily medical life. Maybe it would be uh, important or illustrative to discuss uh, a few uh, clinical cases. So there is one interesting case that you discussed. It's about uh, a previously untreated patient with, if I'm correct, a few um, uh, months uh, um, old, uh, was diagnosed with... uh, Hemophilia. There is uh, no family history of inhibitor. It was started on prophylaxis with emesizumab, and uh, and then what, Christoph? What would be the implication that we need to think about in terms of uh, tolerance inhibitor development for this kind of patient? Yes, we um, during the um, during the session we introduced Ben, um, seven month old, um, starting prophylaxis with emesizumab, and we were discussing how do we counsel the parents regarding factorite immunogenicity. Do we have to expect an inhibitor or what do we have to do? The situation is um, very clear. Like if we start factorite prophylaxis, we have regular exposures and have on top factorite on demand. If we start, or as we start prophylaxis with emicizumab in this case, we don't have regular factorite, we only have factorite on demand. We know the kit is well protected against bleed due to the emicizumab prophylaxis, but we have no idea what that actually means for inhibitor development. Again, coming back what Jan said a few minutes ago, we will have peak treatment moments, probably not many, um, and we don't have regular factorite exposure. So perhaps we do see an inhibitor risk there, but we don't really know yet as there's not much data available yet. Okay, so... Clearly, the natural history of inhibitor development that you are familiar with is, will be totally different in the future. Yes, probably. I'm, um, I'm not too convinced that we can transfer much of our knowledge that we have so far from severe or what's quite often done as well from um, mild hemophilia A to inhibitor development for severe hemophilia A patients treated with emicizumab. So we definitely need to to collect the data in the future to know what we would expect in a previously untreated patient uh, on emiprophylaxis with uh, occasional factor eight exposure. And since Christoph, you are really an expert in, in, in immunology, would you elaborate a little bit on, on all the immunological mechanisms that could be involved here or play an important role or that we should all be aware of in the future? Yes, there, there's many that are being discussed, um, mainly for other antigens than factor eight. But uh, what I really liked in this context is the theory of discontinuity. And it basically says that the immune system does not recognize the antigen as such, but recognizes a change in antigen exposure. And the authors um, of this theory gave a really nice uh, um, parallel um, picture of a frog and a fly. If the fly is sitting in front of the frog, nothing happens. But as soon as the fly moves, so the pattern changes, the frog sees the fly and eats it. And the authors discussed that that might be the same for the immune system. So if we have continuous exposure and no changes to an antigen, we don't mount an immune response. But if we have um, occasional exposure, for example, with with vaccines or also could be with on-demand treatment for factor eight, that could mount an immune response. And I like this theory very much. It's been, there's evidence for this also from tumor antigens and other antigens from other biologicals, uh, but it could also fit for factor eight. But if what that means for our daily clinical life, we will need to see in the near future f- uh, from these little kids treated with emicizumab. Thank you. So if you had key messages to share with our colleagues about factor eight immunology in pups 
in the era of non-replacement therapy and emicizumab in particular? What would you what would you say? Well, the first, the important thing is we don't really know what to expect, and the main aspect for the clinical care to to provide a safe treatment is that we have to be aware that factor eight inhibitors may develop with infrequent factor eight exposure exposure under emicizumab therapy. So we have to look for uh, inhibitors regularly that we can treat bleeds or surgery safely in our kids with ME treatment. Okay, thank you. So maybe I think it's time now to move to another category of patients who are previously treated patients. And many of these patients have also been switched to emicizumab. So maybe uh, Jan or, or Christophe, there is another interesting case that you discussed, who is a, a male patient, 60 years of age, with hemophilia, no past history of inhibitor arthropathy. He used to be treated with EHL factor eight twice a week with occasional breakthrough bleeds. Uh, he was experiencing venous access problems and he was switched to emicizumab. So could you elaborate a little bit on what to expect and how to provide counseling with regards to factor eight immunogenicity for this kind of patient? Yes, in this scenario, uh, when we have no inhibitor history before, we have an adult patient, uh, we switch to emicizumab, maybe for reasons of venous access problems, etc. I would say that we don't know too much about the risk of having inhibitors. Uh, we have discussed, as we did before here now, you, Chris, did, about the, the potential importance of having a continuous exposure uh, to keep the tolerance. And maybe it could be that if we stop this continuous exposure, maybe the risk can gets higher. We don't know. So we need that data. There has been this uh, data from the UK indication indicating a second peak at a higher age, but whether that will be influenced by uh, the switch to emicizumab and no continuous exposure, that has to be uh, studied actually. And maybe you, Chris, have something to add here as well. Oh yeah, just, just one little comment, Jan. Um, I'm in, in this patient group, I'm personally not too much worried about inhibitor development after all those years of factor eight exposure. We do have historical data from the days when we stopped prophylaxis when children turned into adults. And uh, there was actually there's a nice study on joint health from the Netherlands. And they only looked at joint health, but they also looked at inhibitors, but uh, there was no inhibitor development um, after stopping factor eight prophylaxis for 10 years and only treating on demand. Nevertheless, I think also here we have to stress, we don't know much. So we also need to monitor inhibitor development in the PTPs on ME with occasional factor eight exposure. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. So uh, maybe uh, it's quite relevant now to move to another scenario that I would like to share with you with a, a gentleman, 20 years of age, uh, who had low-dose ITI that helped to convert his high-responding inhibitor into a low-responding inhibitor in the past. So that gentleman is still requiring factor eight in case of bleed and surgery. And then he was switched to emicizumab prophylaxis as many patients with a past history of inhibitor. So maybe to, to uh, you, Christoph, first, what uh, do you think we should expect and how should we, again, provide counseling with regards to factor eight immunogenicity in this gentleman? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think there's, there's basically um, three scenarios that we could expect. First of all, nothing happens and the inhibitor stays the low um, uh, the, the low responding inhibitor as it was prior to switch. 
Second scenario, the inhibitor increases because we take away the factor eight that masks the inhibitor in the Bethesda assay. So we measure what we actually have, which might be higher. And third, without the, without the exposure to factor eight, the immune system may also produce less inhibitors. So we might get rid of the inhibitor. We, we don't really know, but this is the three scenarios that we could expect. Um, and again, that we need to look after or need, need to look for while monitoring the patient. Thank you. Jan, any additional comment on this management? I fully agree. And I, I think it's very, the, the key message here is that uh, we need to monitor these patients uh, and, and follow what happens if they have an inhibitor or, or whether they have been tolerized, which might be the, the second, second uh, situation here to discuss what happens after ITI success and, and the risk of having the inhibitor back. Okay, so we are now close to the end of this podcast. And maybe I would like to ask you What would be your suggestions for monitoring uh, inhibitors in patients on non-replacement therapy? And maybe, cross Christoph, if we consider PUPs, what would you recommend? For PUPs that are on ME treatment with occasional factor VIII exposure, um, I strongly recommend that we monitor factor, uh, that we monitor factor VIII inhibitors uh, basically lifelong because we have uh, not many factor VIII exposures, but we do have factor VIII exposures. So we cannot rely on the first 20 or 50 exposure days as we did in the past, but we need to monitor lifelong. That's my suggestion. And Jan, regarding PTPs, what would you advise? Well, I think basically the same. I think that even though we are a little bit older, you should continue and monitor uh, lifelong. And it should be based uh, on the exposure of the factor eight molecule. And of course, the situation where you have had a patient with an inhibitor and you have what you believe successfully eradicated that immune response, that of course is really important to monitor and measure before and after exposure. And also in patients with inhibitors, like the case that Chris mentioned here, to see how high the inhibitor title will be and whether it's potentially can, can, that patient can be treated with factor eight if the inhibitor is low. So for planned surgery, et cetera, it will be important also to monitor and measure that patient. So lifelong and based on exposure, I would say. And maybe we should also emphasize that if you have been on ME for a long time and not exposed to factor eight for a long time, you might have cleared your inhibitor and that could also allow some invasive procedure to be performed with factor eight, if I'm correct. Yes, absolutely. So I think that concludes very nicely your presentation. I would like to emphasize that the full discussion is available on the HEHAT platform with all the slides and uh, much more discussion. But um, uh, to both of you, I would like to say a great thank you for uh, contributing to this podcast and making this event alive a little bit longer. So I uh, wish you a great day, evening, and uh, hope to see uh, and um, well, meet you again in, in the future. Bye-bye. Thank you to both of you. Bye-bye. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Thank you.